0: Well, it's good to greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is good to see your faces. It's good to welcome each of you uh, here in this room, as well as those that are watching from home or uh, traveling over the holiday weekend. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 17, is where we'll be studying uh, this morning and for the next few weeks to come. And uh, we're going to carry this chapter through at least uh, the larger portion of the month of December. As we look toward Christmas, uh, we begin uh, our Advent this morning. And uh, that's what these candles down here are for. We'll light that, that fifth and final white candle on Christmas Eve together. But uh, I'd like to read for you at least the first five verses of John chapter 17 and uh, we'll look at the first five today and uh, the rest in the weeks to come but let me read this we'll pray and then we will study together chapter 17 John's gospel verse 1 when Jesus had spoken these words he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said father the hour has come glorify your son Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is God's word. Let's pray once again. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sunday morning and the time together in church. Lord, open to us your word. Help us to understand it and then help us to obey it. Lord, do in our heart and in our head whatever needs to take place to do those things may the distractions disappear Lord may the things that are heavy on our hearts be strangely comforted by you Lord bless the situation we live in and all the way from minor inconvenience to sorrow Lord bless us all and help us to bless each other as we wait for each other in the spirit of your love and kindness. But for today, Lord, for our portion in your word, be our teacher. Make us your students. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, if you were to ask me uh, a a question that probably comes up uh, in seminary and maybe even in ordination councils things like that do you believe that every passage of scripture is just as important as any other passage of scripture that it's all inspired that it's all God breathed that it's all as important as any other word I'd answer that question with a confident yes but when you come across a passage like this that we're reading and it'll take us a while to get into it and understand its depth But if you weren't understanding and and convinced of that one specific question just asked and answered, this might be one of those passages that you would want to think is more important than others because of what we've got. And that is a prayer from the Son of God to God the Father, but for some strange reason in the listening of His disciples who recorded it for us but if you think about that you get to sit in on God the Son's prayer to God the Father Um, have you ever not by invitation but accidentally stepped in on someone's prayer and felt that that's something private that's not meant for me or to read someone's journal their prayer journal perhaps Or even to, as we're going to do today, actually sit in study over something that amounts to one long prayer and actually cut it up into pieces and outline it as if to try to get at all the different directions of what it means. You'd almost feel like there's something irreverent about this. This is Jesus' heart for His Father and I'm sitting here pulling it apart into pieces, analyzing it and trying to put it back together. So, in a way, this is this is holy ground, and it'll it'll take uh, a special effort, not only to think our way through it, but have our our heart in it the way it should be, as we go. So let me give you a bit of background to start with, just as to what we're looking at, and uh, as as far as its composition. This is a farewell prayer because of its proximity to the time that. Jesus has with these men, uh, his disciples, before they're separated by his death. Uh, It's been, uh, for the centuries really, uh, called the high priestly prayer. And that wouldn't be incorrect. And all through this gospel we see Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And he is praying as a priest on behalf of others. Uh, But I think that would be uh, to say what we could but not to say all that we could um, because there's other things involved in this as well. Uh, Since it is prayed in the hearing of the disciples, we'll put it in their perspective and we'll call it a farewell. It's not a freestanding prayer just to say that, that... uh, It's not that John was putting this book together and he said, oh yeah, there was that really good prayer. We need to stick it in here somewhere. This is tightly tied with what happened before it. It's it's the finish to what started in the upper room in the 13th chapter with Jesus washing their feet. Uh, This is going to have to wrap it all up. And uh, it's not freestanding. It was probably either spoken just before those men left the upper room Or it was spoken as they were making their way from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you're piecing together what happened in the the line of events during uh, the Easter story. They've got to get from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane where the arrest takes place. And it was at night. And it meant that they had to go down through the valley in order to do so. This may have taken place while they were in transit. Sometimes we want to look at this passage as if it's rather gloomy, because it's hard to forget the other prayers that happen on the same night, when Luke talks about Jesus sweating, as it were, great drops of blood from his head. That, that's a lot of, of tormenting anguish. But then in this case, uh, it doesn't seem to be gloomy at all, the way John is, is describing the same night. Now, some would say we've got a contradiction there. I don't, I don't buy that at all. I think wrapped up in the God-man, you've got quite the opportunity for him to be confident on his way to the cross. At the same time, uh, very much anxious to get through not only what will be horrific as far as His human body, But the betrayal of his father, it seems, when he says, why have you forsaken me? So there's so much going on that none of us as humans could understand. Well, this is God as human. So this is not set against a gloomy background, because if we go right back to what he said previous at the end of chapter 16, he has just said that he's overcome the world. So this prayer is built on the basis of his confidence in victory. Uh, The prayer itself subdivides easily enough into three pieces, and we'll look at that in the next three weeks, the first five verses today. Again, it seems kind of strange or perhaps irreverent to be chopping up the prayer of of Jesus. But for the purpose of our study and understanding, that, that is how we'll do it. The first five verses... Uh, Jesus prays for His own glorification. All this today is about glory. The next few verses, 6 through 19, Jesus prays for His disciples. Those 11 that are left, Judas is now gone. And then the final verses, 20 through 26, Jesus will pray for those who will believe because of the ministry of these disciples, and that includes you and I. Uh, We're wrapped up in here as well. And common to all three of these is is a very clear desire uh, that the Father's purpose is accomplished. Just like we saw it from the very beginning with with Jesus, uh, about His Father's business as a boy, the same is true on the night before His crucifixion. So let's look at verse 1 again. And uh, verse 1 of chapter 17, When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So, just to break it down, uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, what words? Well, the words in chapter 16 and 15 and 14, all the way back to 13. All of this is one evening, a few hours, maybe even one setting. So, when he'd finished those things, he lifts up his eyes to heaven and begins to pray. We don't know that this was always the way Jesus would pray. But we know that this is at least one of a few times where when he prayed, he lifted his eyes to heaven to pray. We also know that the parable he used talking about a tax collector, he was not confident enough to lift up his eyes. But remember, beat on his chest, he said he was in need of mercy as a sinner. So this is a normal way to pray. We see others pray like this. Jesus prays like this. Uh, The form of his address, the way that he speaks to his father, is no different than a child would speak to his parents. This would be the same way as one of my children would come up to my room to ask me something or to tell me it's time for dinner. Um, Father is just as generic as any use of that in our language again, Jesus mentions his hour here, which should raise the level of climactic drama significantly. If we were watching this in some motion picture, just the language of hearing that phrase used brings back many, many episodes going all the way back to the beginning in chapter two when he's talking to his mother and they run out of wine at the the marriage feast. And she asks for help and he says, this is not my hour. I'm not supposed to Play my cards yet. But he did help her, but only a few knew what he'd done. And then in chapter 7, after the feeding of the 5,000, and people are walking away because Jesus had had really turned the tables on them as far as his message. And it was too much for people. And his brother said, you need to go to Jerusalem and do these things. And Jesus said to them, "My hour's not yet come. And then there's at least two times where His life was in danger, but because it wasn't his hour, he escaped from them uh, rather miraculously. All of those things are saying the same thing. It's not time yet. Then he says his hour had come in chapter 12, which was just hours ago, but it was kind of cryptic as far as what he was saying. Here it's even more clear. The clearest it's been yet, it's here. And Jesus prays now that he be glorified. Through what we know to be his passion. And what for? Look at it, it's right clear. It's a reciprocal type of an arrangement. Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And as far as these first five verses, um, this part of the prayer is often said to be Jesus' prayer for himself. I didn't call it that a minute ago. Uh, we're going to write if we're making notes Jesus prays for his own glorification and the reason why I want to say it that way is because that's not the way we would think about it if we were thinking about it from our perspective because he's praying that he be glorified it sounds like he's praying for himself but it would not be saying again all that could be said because there's as much said in this prayer about him praying for the glory of the Father to make it look as if there's any chance that this prayer is self-serving, or uh, that it for some reason benefits him himself. This glorification that he's asking for, "Glorify me," is actually by way of the cross. we're going to get into that here in a moment, what all that means. But it's kind of hard for you to request to be glorified when the means for glorification involves your brutal death. So there's a lot to to think through. That's the business for which God had sent him. So if we're going to say that this part of the prayer is for Jesus, we need to be clear that there's no self-seeking in it. And the reason we say that is because when we seek our own glory, it's always at the expense of God's glory. Um, there, there can't be two that are worthy of, of the highest glory. We can't look for our own glory without actually robbing God of some of His. They're in competition with each other. Either we sit on the throne or God sits on the throne as far as our life is concerned, right? Right? It's always in in conflict. This is different though. Jesus cannot be wrong in bringing glory to himself. That's what he's asking for. The Father give it to him. Because he's the actual center of the universe to start with. So you you can't be uh, guilty of glory grubbing when you deserve it all. That's the reason why I think it's important not to... Call it him praying for himself. Because when we pray for ourselves, we're actually praying for ourselves. And uh, that can get us into trouble. So the first section, first five verses, all about glory. It uh, goes well with some of the things that we learn through uh, catechism and such. If you're familiar with that, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So let's do a little Uh, explaining as far as what we mean by glory we've said glory enough uh, we've sung about it read a passage earlier about it we'll conclude with another passage and it's shot through these five verses what do we mean when we say glory well as far as our Bibles go and theology and our time spent in church um, when we say glory it is what Jesus, what God, what the Holy Spirit deserves because of who He is and what He's done. Has to do with His holiness, His beauty, His splendor, His righteousness, His mercy, His goodness. All these things that He is that we are not. That is to glorify Him and that is to honor Him. Uh, it, it's not a complicated idea but it is a vast idea to give him the glory that he is due and we could talk about this in depth I might could uh, risk boring you to sleep with the, th- with the theological studies uh, that could be had on that one subject the glory of God but for the sake of understanding it and getting through this in a timely fashion To be able to to say, I I think I know what these five verses mean and how I should obey them. I would like to explain them the way I heard them explained recently um, by a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. And uh, he sets this up as the way you might explain the concept of glory to a child. Both glory as we understand it and glory as it should be understood as what God himself deserves um, even though our culture is less and less uh, a a biblical culture, that, that, that our culture is less and less, um, should I say, uh, biblically literate, and more and more words that might have been off limits to our culture because they were used in the church. Uh, for an example... Generations ago, nobody would ever put a show on TV called American Idol because idols were bad, right? And that's even long gone now. That, that's old news. But we're still as a culture not ready to start throwing the word glory around because glory really has its heavenly meaning more so than anything else. You may hear it in uh, patriotic language about hymns that we talk about about on the 4th of July or Veterans Days or saluting old glory, something like that. But as far as just using around in common everyday terms, we don't don't do that yet. If you wanted to describe uh, someone who's worthy of a huge truckload worth of attention, uh, probably the most common thing you might say is... uh, they're a big deal. Or we make a big deal about them. Uh, on our birthday. Don't, aren't we used to making a bigger deal about that day. Than about other days. And uh, this is where we need to be careful too. Because you can, you can teach your little one on their birthday. That the world actually does revolve around them. Which is what we know from scripture to be uh, not at all true. Um, So we would use it in those terms. Now, at the sake of making sure you know I'm not trying to be at all sacrilegious. This is just to help us understand the language of what Jesus is saying to His Father. Let me back up in passages we've already studied in this gospel and take the word glory and switch it for big deal. Okay? Again, we're trying to learn as if we're putting it on the bottom shelf for kids to understand. This is John 8, 54 And as Jesus speaking. He says, if I make a big deal of myself, I've substituted that for glorify. My big deal is nothing. He said, I'm not going to glorify myself. If my father or it is my father who makes a big deal of me. He's setting those listening straight how this all works. In John 11, this is verse 4. This illness does not lead to death it is to make a big deal of God so that the Son of God may be a big deal through it it's gathering attention it's, it's drawing uh, something that is not uh, deserving of everyone else around all the attention the glory is being drawn toward the Father and the Son here John 12 this is just hours earlier to where we're reading 12.28 Father Make a big deal of your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have made a big deal. And I will make a big deal of it again. You kind of get the picture? And then back to where we started. Verse 1 of John 17. Father, the hour has come. Make a big deal of your Son that the Son may make a big deal of you. That's his prayer. All the attention that is... Worth, who you are, should be given to you. Now take that and then think of it from your own perspective. If if we are being made a big deal, or to be made a big deal, what, what are we saying? Uh, recognize me. Uh, give me an award, give me attention, validate me, give me credit for an idea that I had first, Uh, give me the credit for having provided for this family. You just fill in the blank. Make a big deal out of me. But have you ever on your list of make a big deal out of me ended by saying crucify me? That is how different, worlds apart, this is than any of the stuff that we think of, including his disciples who are thinking, make a big deal out of this man as he resumes the throne of David and frees us from Rome and, and maybe picks one of us to sit on his right hand and on his left hand. Make a big deal out of all of us. But crucify him? That doesn't make sense in the slightest. But this is exactly what Jesus is asking for. Many of us would would say any number of things. But what Jesus is saying is be glorified in me taking their place. And this is precisely why we make a big deal out of Jesus. And why we don't make a big deal of ourselves. He put himself in our place to give us eternal life back that we lost In the Garden of Eden. Look at verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Uh, The thought of verse 1 carries through into verse 2. But actually as the basis of verse 1. The word sense is uh, the connector there. And the glory that he's asking for in verse 1 is actually given on account of this authority that's mentioned in verse 2. The authority is over all flesh, and the authority gives him the capacity to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given to Jesus. It's kind of technical there. It's just a handful of words, but there's a lot going on. This doesn't mean that Jesus has authority over mankind the way a king has authority over his subjects as their sovereign, just because he's in charge. This authority comes by virtue of his having created everyone to start with. And has been given the authority based on the work he's about to complete. To give them their eternal life back. That was lost because of their sin. This is a massive amount of authority. And who gets the gift of eternal life? It's quite simple. All those that the father has given to him. Now we could camp out here for a a long uh, seminary level course or a big fat debate Um, there's a lot wrapped up in this but it is as predestinarian as it smells (laughs) and the truth is we're looking into things we don't understand we're looking into the agreement between the father and the son that was made before the foundations of the world were ever laid And all we know is that a number of us, not all of us, but a number of those He created were given to the Son. And the agreement was that the Son would take their place to give them back the life that was lost. I think the plain things in Scripture are the main things in Scripture and the main things are the plain things and the plain thing here, which seems main, is that it's quite simple. Who gets eternal life? The ones God gives the Son look at verse 3 and this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent interesting that Jesus is talking of himself in the third person here but the mechanics are what we've known to be true all through the Gospel of John. It's something of a definition of this eternal life here. This is eternal life. So if, if you ever want to show someone, ask the question, so what is this eternal life you're talking about? Well, here's a very basic definition. And the definition is, this eternal life is knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ. And it's not the way to eternal life. It is eternal life. That's the transaction, to know the Father and the Son is to have this eternal life. To know God is to be transformed from death to life. And it also makes sense that we can't just know God any way we choose. We must know Him through the one He sent. That's right out of verse 18 of the first chapter of, of John's Gospel. We'll look at that here. But um, what I do want to show you here, because I think this is uh, really a, 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 an, an absolute... Vacation for the mind. Those of you that like to think through things. um, Notice in this verse, verse 3, that the eternal life defined is not described in chronological terms. As in length of time or measured with this thing right here. Isn't that the way you always think of it? even if you're explaining it to your kids or witnessing on the street or something when you talk about everlasting life don't we all want to frame that in a forever it's hard to think about because forever is forever right? but it's just a really, 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 really long time to live instead of being dead right? we always think of it chronologically nothing is said chronologically about this eternal life but rather Instead of that, it's described by a relationship. What's eternal life? Living forever and ever? No. What is eternal life? It's knowing an eternal God. Okay, well, let, let's, let's allow me to speak philosophically here for a moment. And It's not really philosophically. It's theologically, but it's going to sound philosophically. As if, boy, he, he, it sounded good for a minute and then he lost me. You can talk about this over lunch and see who survived. <laughs> but if you think about our life, and, and not so much brain waves and heartbeats, but the whole experience of being alive, and the involvement of ourselves in the environment that we live in... Uh, I think just about every one of us live in North Carolina. Uh, We're not in North Dakota. uh, We're not in Lower Mongolia. We have a certain environment. There's certain people we know. There's certain things that are part of our lives. But it is an environment. And that's our life. The opposite of that would be death. Where that would be the end. The cessation of any involvement in the environment. Forget North Carolina. If you're gone, right? That, that that interaction is is no longer possible, um, whether physical or personal. Our involvement is usually what we say life is all about. When you say what, what is life, a doctor may describe the metabolic motor that that's running, uh, that needs fuel and oxygen. But when we talk about it, it's wrapped up in 100,000 million little experiences between each other. And the food we eat and the air we breathe and what it smells like when we do, that's that environment. That's our life. Now, you might say that the highest kind of life would involve the highest kind of environment, right? Take what you've got here in North Carolina and compare it to what Adam and Eve had in Eden, where they had everything they ever needed and most of what they wanted except for that one tree that they actually took a bite of. But they had not only a relationship with each other, but an unfettered relationship with the God who created them too. So wouldn't you say that their experience with their environment was on a higher level than the one that we've got right now? All right, that's thinking up. Okay, think down for a minute. Um, those miserable fire ants that are in our backyard. And the other day I was on on the phone walking around the backyard and stopped for just a moment only to have my leg lit up and then see my whole shoe engulfed in these things. They're perfectly happy to live in that little anthill and tear the yard up. They're already working on those pavers out front, I can see. Their experience is nowhere near ours. Uh, we can fly on a plane, we can uh, go on a submarine in the ocean, and all kinds of stuff here on the land, they're stuck in that anthill. So you kind of see the difference between life and that involvement. Take all of that, and then think of this. For the complete fulfillment of our being as it was created to be, we need to know God. And the only way to do that is with eternity. Because we're doing our best in in the Lord's house on a Sunday all dressed up with an open Bible. And still most of this is mystery to us. It's going to take eternity to work on a relationship with a God even to scratch the surface. So when Jesus says glorify me so I can glorify you because of the authority you gave me to give life to these people. And what is that stuff? it's to know God and to know the Son this isn't enough to even find the edges of such a thing to know God is going to knock the roof off this experience we have here not just back to the garden that was the beginning so eternal life shouldn't so much be thought of as everlasting life As it is knowledge personally of the everlasting God. That's where the everlasting comes into focus. And how can we know this God? Well, again, back to chapter 1 with verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And at this point, He absolutely has. As glorified, risen again. But look at verse 4. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. Almost sounds like he's getting ahead of himself. We'll get to that here in a moment. But what it refers to is a completed task. It's as good as done. The work that the Father assigned his Son has been brought to its purposed end. Even though Jesus has accomplished this work, the Father is seen as having initiated it. And then by the time you get to verse 5, And now, you know, right now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So, talk about getting philosophical. Now, this is theological. Jesus is talking to his Father about a period of time and a position together before any of us or this planet ever existed. Now, David opened this service with Philippians 2. The passage from its Greek word is known as the emptying passage, where at a point in our time, God sent His Son from heaven into this world. C.S. Lewis describes this uh, by envisioning a man from a great height diving down into a very dark pool. And as, as the deeper he gets, the darker it gets, the pressure mounts before it's as if he can't take it anymore and will not survive. He turns around and comes back up through all those layers. It gets brighter, and he's back to the place where he was meant to be. He so said, that's a horrible illustration to capture it all fully, but that's kind of the idea. Jesus left heaven and left his glory... As having put it aside to come do what was necessary to give us life. It's at this point that Jesus is asking, now that that work is complete, to reverse the process. Jesus is now praying to God to glorify him in the completion of his task, looking for glory in the last place men would ever expect to find it the glory of a cross. And speaking of the pre-existent, original glory of the Son that Jesus had before His incarnation. We don't know much about God. Jesus came here to help us with all that. Trying to understand what Him and the Father had before we were ever here is almost an impossibility. But in a manner of speaking, He is asking to reverse the self-emptying that was necessary for Christmas... To restore Him to the glory that He shared with the Father before the world began. In other words, the work is done. It's time to come home. He'd emptied Himself, not of His deity, but just His glory. Being a big deal as He deserved to be a big deal. For this task, and it's almost, if, if we were putting this in other words or in another way of speaking... It's almost like Jesus is saying, I want to come back. The work's done. But I never want to come back except by the way that accomplishes the purpose for the reason why I came. Give me back my glory, but only by the cross and no other. That's quite a prayer. And as the following verses are going to bear it out, where he prays for his disciples and then for us, you've got Jesus speaking to his father, kind of positioned on the edge of two worlds, praying to be permitted to leave one world for the other, to return to his glory that he alone deserves, having finished the work that was given to him. And then at the same time, we need to understand that he's not just thinking of himself and withdrawing to his eternal glory to leave us all behind. That would be tempting, wouldn't it? Again, we want to think of it the way we would think of it. Done with that, clocking out, going home, retiring, buying a beach house. Forget it all. Leave me alone. I've earned it. That's the way we would think about it. This is not the way he thinks about it. He will forever be known as the one who's looked on as the one who was pierced. If you pay attention as we move through this, when the world became flesh, it was never meant to be temporary. Temporary. The word became flesh. What did Jesus do with that body that they laid in the tomb? Did he leave it there? Did he take it with him? It was a glorified body, but he took it with him. And then when he uh, would show himself to the disciples, did he have it with him? Was he able to verify that it, it was the right one? And in Revelation, doesn't it talk about that again? It was never meant to be temporary. He'll forever be known as Jesus. In fact, when we finish the passage David read, he has his earthly name. That's the way the world will know him. Heaven too. So although the final act of his work remains to be carried out, we've got many chapters ahead of us in John's gospel. He speaks of it as complete, even though it might sound like he's getting ahead of himself. If there's anyone capable of uh, talking this way as if it's a done deal and that he's good for it, it would be Jesus. And where we stand, it's been done for 2,000 plus years though planned from forever past. The question this morning is, do you know anything about this eternal life he's referring to? And do you know that it's not just being something or knowing something, but knowing someone? And it's not something you can do for yourself. It's something that he does for you. It's a, it's a gift of grace. And it is completely opposite and and runs about as backward to the idea of living our lives to make a big deal of ourselves. To do that, to live that way, would be to live against the flow of the universe. I've already used it and you've heard it said. We don't ever like being in the company of someone who thinks the world revolves around them, right? Well, the universe as we know it and everything else revolves around God but to act as if it revolves around us is to go backward and it shouldn't be becoming of a Christian Christians shouldn't live like it's their birthday and if anybody's birthday is worth celebrating we got one coming up on the 25th even though I don't know that's exactly the day it took place but that's worth making a big deal about right? And it's worth making a bigger deal out of Easter, where the greatest story ever told began at Christmas. Well, it's not complete until Easter. And this year, where we land in John's gospel, we get to tie Christmas and Easter together over the next few weeks. So we're going to sing a song to conclude our service. And uh, I believe it's fitting. It's not one we've sang for generations, but we've sang for months now come behold the wondrous mystery and I think it does a a grand job of putting into words all that we've looked at thus far and uh, after we've we've sung this song I'm going to come back and we're going to light this advent candle, tie some things together and finish the passage that David started at the beginning of the service but take the time as we sing this to put these themes together it is mysterious. Why would it happen in the first place? The, the, the biggest question on, on the minds of mankind is not why aren't there a thousand ways to get to heaven. Why is there any way at all? Why would he fool with us? Because he's worthy of this glory that none of us can understand. And that's what this passage has been about.